This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7am on Tuesday the 6th of February. My name is Carnegie and I'm in the studio today with Fung and Francis. Good morning. 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 How are we all today? Adjusting from the 30-something degree weather to suddenly not that weather. Exactly, but my house is still sort of 30 degrees. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So you put on your clothes and then go outside and get a shock. Yes, (laughs) classic uh, wild Melbourne weather. Um, Was the weekend fun for anyone? Did, um, Did people go to the rally on Sunday? Yes, I went and it was... Um, it was great to see so many people there despite the the heat and how uncomfortable it was. Um, but, yeah, there was still a really good turnout. And um, Yara, one of our favourite artists that we play here, Palestinian singer, songwriter based in Nam, performed a song at the end and that was really beautiful. So, yeah, it was really um, special to see her perform live. Um, yeah, it's always so nice to have um, people performing songs and poetry at rallies. I feel like it adds, um, I don't know, just something different um, to the space. And yeah, just a different way to, I guess, express, um, you know, one's love for um, Palestine and yeah, wanting land back and um, freedom. So, yeah, it was beautiful. That sounds incredible. I agree. I think that, you know, we've had um, Yara and a few other artists speak on the show about this and they all are so eloquent in the way they describe how art can bring such a different um, element of expression to something like this, especially uh, with this. It's such a sustained, long protest that you know the whole world is essentially involved in so it's it's always nice to have yeah that kind of expression let's talk about what's coming up on the show this morning so today we're going to be sharing with you a conversation between Annie McLaughlin and Christine Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre. Um, we're going to play this in two parts and in this discussion they talk about the changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts that were recently announced by the Albanese government. So that's coming um, first and last on today's show. At 7.30, we'll be speaking to Lani Yuk, who is a Larikia, um, Kungarakan, Gurindji and French political creative and performer. 
and um, we'll be speaking to Lani Yuk about um, the current um, campaign to protect Lee Point, so the sacred lands of the Larrakia people, um, which is currently being currently under threat of being destroyed by Defence Housing Australia. So speaking about that and why this uh, land is so special to these people. At 7.45, we'll be listening to a conversation I had with uh, Dr. Kathomi Gatwiri, who's an associate professor and researcher at the Southern Cross University. I spoke with uh, Kathomi yesterday about her work on femicide count Kenya and what's currently going on in Kenya. And at 8, we will be speaking with uh, Aruna Venkatachalam from Young Change Agents about a entrepreneurship uh, program that they've come up with for First Nations youth here, as well as youth in rural India um, to help empower them and bring them out of um, sort of generational poverty and uh, the lack of opportunity. So that's our show for this morning. We will be back with the news headlines right after this. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR and these are the news headlines for Tuesday the 6th of February. Uh, Independent Australia is reporting on the targeting of Palestine supporters in Australia. More evidence is emerging of pro-Israel groups targeting those who show open solidarity with Palestine, especially online and in public spaces, uh, including those who are calling for an end to Israel's genocide against the Palestinians. Uh, Earlier this month, when ABC journalist and presenter Antoinette Latouf was dismissed after reposting a Human Rights Watch report, it was revealed that there was fierce lobbying campaign directed at the ABC calling for her to be sacked. This campaign included a group called Lawyers for Israel, as well as uh, some members of another discussion group, Jewish Australian Creatives and Academics. The latter has since targeted Australian literary journal Overland for its work platforming Palestinian voices and its work in solidarity with the cause. Co-editor of the journal Evelyn Araluen posted screenshots to X or Twitter last Thursday from the Jewish Australian Creatives and Academics WhatsApp group. These show the group asking for an urgent call to action and legal action against Jonathan Dunk, the co-director, and uh, reports that the group is contacting the two editors' funding bodies and their university employer and and seeking uh, evidence to uh, take down our overland. Uh, In more positive uh, literary and creative news, uh, on Thursday, 1st of February last week, the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, Australia's uh, richest literary awards, were announced. Uh, In the first time a poet has won the prize since 2014, Melbourne-based poet Grace Lee was presented the $100,000 prize for literature as well as the $25,000 award for poetry for her debut collection, Chinese Fish. Uh, The 
judges praise Chinese fish for how it intelligently braids its modes and forms, its feminist vision, and its literary and conceptual sophistication. Uh, in another win, three of the nine winners of the VPLAs were Indigenous writers, including um, Bunjalong and Kulili Ryder, and host of ABCRN's art show, Daniel Browning, who won the prize for Indigenous writing for his collection of essays uh, close to the subject. Uh, Munanjali writer Alan Van Nerven won the nonfiction prize for personal score, sport, culture and identity, which the judges praised as a groundbreaking book that confirms Van Nerven's unrivaled talent, courage and originality. And Guri writer Melissa Lukashenko won the fiction category for her novel Eden Glassy. The judges praised this novel's luminescent truth-telling uh, tellingly, the People's Choice Award went to the Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World by Anthony Lowenstein. The book received 39% of all votes cast. Well, I feel like I've just added a whole bunch of works to my to-read list now. <laughs> yeah. Um, in other news, Vic Forrest announced last fortnight that all community forestry operations would end by February 5, so yesterday, citing the risk and cost of litigation as the reason for its decision. Uh, community forestry operators work under forest product licences, which had been due to expire at the end of June 2024, but it was unclear whether licences could have been extended beyond uh, that date. Vic Forest is facing court proceedings brought by 200, the 200-member community group Wombat Forest Care, um, alleging that it breached requirements to survey for threatened species in Western Victorian forests. Um, and a spokesperson from Wombat Action Group, uh, Amy Carlton, who is also an environmental campaigner, said it was, quote, really special um, to know all forests in Victoria were now safe and protected. Um, so a huge win for all those community groups who have been working so hard to protect um, Victorian forests. In other news, um, listeners may have seen really horrific um, footage of uh, police violence at the Midsummer Pride March over the weekend. Um, there were protesters who um, participated in the march to uh, protest the police's involvement um, due to their ongoing violence against um, marginalised communities, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and, um, of course, members of the LGBTIQ plus communities. Um, footage can be uh, footage shows police tearing banners, pushing, shoving and also um, throwing punches at queer protesters. Um, uh, if you would like to know more, you can see, um, you can follow No Police at Pride on Instagram. They've released a statement with regards to that event. And finally for this morning, research commissioned by the Islamophobia Register Australia has found that there is a pro-Israel bias across surveyed Australian media outlets when it comes to reporting on Gaza. Instagram posts by six of Australia's most followed news outlets were analysed. Only one of the six accounts passed the test of humanising coverage, which involves providing at least a first name for the person being reported on, show their face and or use at least some of their own words. 
It was also an interesting finding um, about the use of what is known as the middle voice, which removes any possibility of an actor causing an event. Um, this was also widespread when reporting on attacks on Gaza, but never used for posts about attacks on Israel. To learn more about the findings and about the research, you can follow uh, the Islamophobia Register Australia on Instagram at Islamophobia Register Oz, or read Susan Collins' article about the research on the conversation. That's our news headlines for this morning. We're going to play you a track now. This one is called Curls by Olympia Vitalis. That was the song Curls by Olympia Vitalis. Uh, first up for you this morning, we're going to play one half of a conversation between Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast and Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre. In this conversation, they talk about the changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts recently announced by the Albanese government. 
It's clear that the government is not very happy with its poll numbers and isn't particularly concerned about the actual lives of ordinary people and particularly people in poverty. And to elaborate a bit on that, um, we've actually now just seen today the announcement about their planned changes to the tax cuts that were due to come in later this year. And what we see from that is the highest income earners will still receive a $4,500 a year tax cut. People below the poverty line will receive a few dollars a week if they're earning above the tax-free threshold. But anyone relying on the job seeker payment um, will not only not receive any help at all, but this change will actually see people on JobSeeker ending up with an income tax bill at the end of the year. And that's because of perverse outcomes from the way that JobSeeker interacts with our tax system. So I think it's really clear that if the Prime Minister wanted to solve these problems and actually help people survive, that they would have dealt with those issues. But they've ignored everything they've been told by welfare recipients. And I think they're just coming up with policy based on what they think the media will like. Yeah, it's like trying to balance... Um, the rhetoric between uh, the big end of town and the needs of the uh, other uh, people in the community? Yes, it's all a game to them. They don't actually think about those of us who don't have it that easy, what it's like and what's necessary. And I don't just mean welfare recipients, of course. I'm sure many folks listening who don't rely on Centrelink payments but do real jobs, unlike political jobs, are also really struggling. And again, these changes are not even going to be particularly significant for people unless they are really high income earners. Well, that uh, figure of $4,000, over $4,000 as a tax cut, that's um, that's unthinkable for people who are, are um, gliding underneath the Henderson poverty line. That's correct. I mean, it actually works out to about three months of job seeker payments. So we could think of it as people earning $200,000 a year, just getting a, a few months worth of job seeker on top of their fantastic salary for fun. Um, it's certainly hard to swallow. And I know that I'm not the only welfare recipient feeling pretty sick um, today, having just seen these announcements. The um Henderson poverty line is something that some people might not even understand. Do you want to explain that to my listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So the Henderson poverty line is currently about $600 a week, and that puts it $225 above the job seeker payment every week. So people are currently trying to survive on a couple of hundred bucks a week below the poverty line, unless they're on youth allowance in which case they're $275 a week below the poverty line. Because despite the fact that things aren't cheaper if you're 22, for some reason you don't get as much, as much money from Centrelink to try and live. So the Henderson poverty line is actually a very old poverty line and it's not particularly sophisticated. But the reason that we and other advocates, other unemployed advocates, um, call for payments to be immediately and urgently lifted to the Henderson poverty line is as a triage measure. It's the least bad one we have. And we know this because of everything that people told us in 2020 when the Morrison government did actually lift payments to that level. Um, so 
things that are need to change. For example, the Henderson Poverty Line was developed in the 60s, so they didn't have mobile phones and computers and things like this. Some things are cheaper, um, like televisions, but some things are more expensive, like houses. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but of the variety of poverty lines um, that people use, we use this one for now, and we have also called on the government many times to work with us to develop a much more sophisticated measure of poverty that will actually help us understand what it costs for low-income people to live. You also have said that um, people, your the Anti-Poverty Network has also pointed out that uh, people have been working very hard to get better outcomes for people uh, in this regard. And we're hoping for much more from this government that uh, it's actually just people are just now worn out because the changes just haven't come. Um, yes, and also I'll just, uh, the Anti-Poverty Network is wonderful and we do work with them, but we're the Anti-Poverty Centre and we uh, apologise for making that quite confusing um, for folks. So I was actually incredibly cynical when um, this government came to power because of the things that they were saying um, ahead of the election and they were extremely careful in their wording. They used a lot of weasel words that were designed to give the impression that they were benevolent and that they cared about people who were struggling, but the actual commitments they made and what was particularly telling was the commitments they refused to make when asked and when pressured by journalists said an awful lot more about what we were to expect. But you're right, a lot of people did feel hope, both people on welfare payments and people who have been really active in advocating for more. And people are demoralised, people are crushed. And despite my incredibly low expectations, I'm really struggling too. And we're not going to stop, but it is an extra um, burden that we're trying to deal with and to overcome on top of the daily just distress and despair of trying to manage impossible budgets on payments that are just unlivable. It's not just uh, the low payments, but it's also a whole range of other things. It's uh, two, uh, things like the uh, um, mutual obligations and uh, people being suspended and uh, that sort of stuff that's really causing trouble, isn't it? Absolutely. So um, another particularly sickening figure that we got right at the end of last year um, was the number of payment suspensions. People might um, not be aware that the government conducted an inquiry into the system that is used to impose these um, penalties, these mutual obligations penalties. And that's if you don't jump through all the right hoops, your payment gets paused or cut completely. And so when that, in the year that it took them to do this inquiry, despite many previous inquiries, despite the mountains of evidence that advocates like ourselves have provided about the harm the system caused. They took a year, and in that year, well over 2 million payment suspension notices were issued, which every single one of those payment suspension notices causes distress, throws, throws people into a tailspin, requires enormous amounts of admin to resolve. An incredible number of them are reversed and often are due to error from the people who are tasked with policing um, welfare recipients and whose job is to impose these penalties. 
And so we had in that one year more than 25% of those suspensions were applied to First Nations people. Um, obviously, that's an incredibly disproportionate number and that's reflective of all sorts of um, things that are making it harder for First Nations people to comply with these pointless and punitive activities, as well as racism from the people imposing the penalties. So it's it's egregious. It is continuing unabated. We have um, written to Minister, the Employment Minister, Tony Burke, uh, late in December, asking for an urgent um pause on this payment suspension activity in the wake of the inquiry report into Workforce Australia. Um, he, he doesn't show a lot of interest in doing things that will actually help people, um, but he does do a good job of feigning interest. So we'll wait to see what his response is on that. He hasn't given us a clear answer yet, but we do feel like we're being strung along. So, yes, there's not a lot of improvement coming out of the Labor government. Well, it's kind of interesting that this, because the CPSU, the Union for Workers in the Public Service, uh, have been running a campaign wanting um, those jobs uh, services to go back to the government in a form of C CES, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, isn't it? absolutely. And we've been calling for a... Um, voluntary public sector employment service for a long time. Um, it's really excellent to have the support of the CPSU now on that, but it's really important that everyone advocating for this, including the CPU, understands that it does not matter who cuts your payment if you cannot afford to eat and that mutual obligations like an unemployment cop having better wages and conditions than the one who used to it doesn't do much for the person who's getting who's being made homeless because they couldn't do a cv in the way that the bully at the job agency dictated to them um or decided to stand up for their rights when they were being lied to so having a public sector employment service we think is really important we think that it can only work if there are no penalties being applied to welfare recipients. And another really important thing to make a high quality service is to make it available to everyone who wants help so that you don't have to be a welfare recipient to use this service, that it can be like many other services, like the public health system where anyone who needs it can access it and you have a choice to go to a private provider if you prefer, but it's not this thing that's concentrated and only for the worst of people because that's how we get bad services is when the only ones who access them are the people who no one else cares about. Mm. Yeah, yeah, this, this is about, uh, um, you know, uh, breaking people down into different uh, unequal groups of people, I guess. That's right. We already have a very high quality private sector employment service and it's not the one the government um, forces us to engage with, but it's called, um, most people call them uh, recruitment firms. You know? yeah, that's so right. Recruitment firms, if you're just a person out there in the world who already has a job, you can go to a recruitment firm and say, hey, I would like help getting a job and they'll do that for you and it's a great experience. In my past experience, I've been able to do that. Um, but you're not allowed to do that or, you know, you're not going to be given a lot of support from those types of people if you're long-term unemployed. And instead of the government sort of realising that there is this inherent problem, they've just created a monster that is mimicking that system but in no way actually required to help people and therefore all it does is punish. There was a very interesting um, note about people who have been um, thrown... Uh, 
had their payments uh, suspended but had to still do mutual obligation. Is that something yes. you yeah, – what's that about? Um, because of how complex this, the online systems are that are used by Centrelink, by Services Australia, by Workforce Australia, by Disability Employment Services, by the job agencies themselves, and um, by the Department of Employment and the Department of Social Services, there are an awful lot of places where information needs to be entered to make sure that your information is correct. But having a payment um, suspended doesn't actually automatically mean you don't have to do activities because your your um, requirement is not based on whether you get money in your account. Your requirement is based on whether you are technically on the books for getting that payment, if that makes sense. So um, for a person who, for example, has been working for a certain period of time, so their payment might go down to zero, but they technically still are on the job seeker payment, even if they don't get any of it, then they still have activities, right? And if you don't want to do those activities, then you can stop doing them. You won't get a payment. You already weren't getting a payment. But what happens if you get kicked off the system and then obviously a lot of people then fear that their casual work or their short-term work will actually dry up and then they have to go through the process of applying again. And uh, that was um, Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre speaking to Annie McLaughlin um, about the changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts. Uh, we'll be playing the rest of their conversation at 8.15am this morning. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast and joining us now is Lani Yuk, who is a Larakia, uh, Kungurakan, Gurindji and French political creative and performer. Um, many listeners would be familiar with Lani Yuk's work um, as her work has been featured on 3CR before. Um, but today Lani Yuk joins us to speak about Lee Point, the sacred lands of the Larrakia people, which is currently under threat of being destroyed by Defence Housing Australia. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I think, you know, especially in light of Invasion Day 2024, um, we see lots of um, banners and uh uh, slogans calling for land back. And I was wondering if, in your own words, you could start by telling us what land back means to you. Oh, wow. You know, that's such a big question. And, um, you know, I think I'm going to maybe start with what land back isn't. I think that the John Howard government did a really fantastic job of underma- undermining Native title for Aboriginal people and for all of the pathways that we had to having access to our land. You know, John Howard um, sort of had this rhetoric of, you know, they're coming for your houses and taking everything for you, from you. And um, really that's not what Land Back is, is working towards. You know, we know that the majority of biodiversity remaining on this planet is in the hands of Indigenous people when we make up such a small percent of the population. Um, currently on this planet, only 5%, I think, is what I've been reading. Um, and, you know, what Land Back is, is about caring for land. I suppose when we're talking about Lee Point in particular, you know, there's an opportunity here for us as Latakia people to have access to our culture and to be able to um, 
enact our 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 language and our and our healing and our ceremony um, in a way that isn't currently op- op- available to us. Um, and so I think, you know, what I would really hope for listeners to take away from this conversation and to really be able to sit with more deeply is that when we're talking about Aboriginal people having access to our land and being able to influence what happens to that land, we're talking about caring for land and caring for country. And that, you know, is for the investment of everyone. John Howard sort of, you know, made this idea of native title and land back as though it's a selfish operation for Indigenous people to take everything from you. And actually what we're trying to do is hold everything for everyone, a, a responsibility that is a strong part of our culture. You know, when people are on our lands, we have a responsibility to care for those people, but we have a responsibility to the land to care for everyone. Um, so I think that's a a huge clash of understanding between Aboriginal people and the Australian government, and I think John Howard has a lot to answer to for that. Yeah, thank you so much for um, for that beautiful um, explanation. I think what you were saying just now about the rhetoric of, of um, John Howard and, and the government is, you know, just that continuation of that colonial mindset of, mm. you know, even them projecting that onto onto native title and um, wanting, uh, you know, a- Aboriginal people wanting to care for country, you know, it's been manipulated and twisted into this colonial project which land back is everything but so um thank you for that yeah and i think a rhetoric of individualism Mm. which is not an aboriginal way of doing things you know our our ways are of um collectivity and of care and so i think you know there is this um you know when we're talking about land back people often trying to understand it through a government understanding rather than sort of meeting us where we are and looking at our understanding of land back through an Indigenous lens of continuity and of future and of care. Yeah, and and speaking of that, I'm sure many of our listeners have already watched uh, the beautiful videos filmed by Saltwater Bird Productions of Larrakee people speaking about Lee Point. Can you talk about the significance of these sacred lands to the Larrakee people? Absolutely. Um, oh, it's an emotional topic. Um, so I was... I'm in Darwin because I'm currently living in Melbourne, but I went home to Darwin to sit down with a lot of key people and talk about the significance of Lee Point, which is the videos that you're talking about now um, that I've posted on social media. And I think I went in with some ideas and some understanding of what Lee Point is because, you know, my family gathers there. Um, it's a really beautiful, lush um, bush right on the coast. It's gorgeous and so I and you know there of course are the cultural significance of that area there are ceremonial sites there's um it's abundant with native fruits and weaving materials and um I think it's it means a lot to a lot of people in Darwin what I hadn't quite been prepared for was to sit down with our elders and 
you know, for them to speak about Lee Point, they needed to speak about Darwin more broadly and what they had seen over their lifetime as Darwin as a city has continued to expand and to understand the destruction of Lee Point and the significance of that for Latakia people. It was actually the conversations that needed to be had about the destruction of other significant sites in Darwin. And so as Darwin continues to expand across Latakia country, we're losing so much every single day. Mm. You know, roads are being built, new suburbs are being built. And Lee Point, I think, represents almost one of the final places in the central Darwin area where we are able to access our culture, to sit in a place and not see, you know, as um, one of the interviewees, Shana, says, you know, the reminders of colonization all around us. Mm. It's a place that we can have that silence and that peace with our country. And what what I had sort of gone in thinking, oh, this is about, you know, stopping the destruction of Defence Housing Australia, building 800 houses in the area, which is true, that does need to happen, but actually... Even larger than that, this really represents an opportunity for a lot of queer people for us to maintain our culture into the future mm. um, and to maintain access to our lands in a way that is so important and significant for us and for our children to be able to pass that on so that while Darwin City <laughs> is continuing to be built on our lands, we have a place of survival and a place to continue our culture. Yeah, and that's one of the themes that I noticed came up um, several times throughout these videos is um, centering children in this, you know, um, caring for countries, caring for children. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about this idea. Well, I was um, in Melbourne following what was happening at Lee Point from a distance because this campaign has actually been going on for, for quite a while. Um, and a lot of people from Darwin... And a lot of Latakia people have been saying for a while now, we do not want Defence Housing Australia to destroy this land, to build 800 houses. And so I was watching and following it from Melbourne. And while that was happening, my one of my sisters um, had a baby. <laughs> and she's the most beautiful, gorgeous thing in the whole world. And I was thinking, how will, how will our children experience Darwin? How will our children experience culture? What will the future look like for them? You know, already within a, a generation or two, our languages and our ceremony and our opportunity to have ceremony and be in our lands has been, has been impacted, you know, just hugely. And so in this next generation coming up, what will their lives look like? And I think that so we really have a responsibility to our children to be protecting this land and to be bringing this land back to Latakia people so that we can pass on, you know, our culture and our languages and so that they have a strong sense of self and so that they go on to continue to protect the land as well for the next generation. Mm. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, it's clear that when it comes to um, the all-round health and well-being of Aboriginal children, it's not something that's going to be um, organised or, or helped by the government. You know, it's going to be coming from within communities 
and like you said that takes place on on country and on on your land um yeah and if i could say something to that as well um absolutely and i think what i see in darwin is a lot of families and a lot of young people um still still carrying the impacts of the Northern Territory intervention. Mm. There is a lot of trauma within the Northern Territory and a lot of trauma within Darwin, and our young people at the moment are hurting, and our young people are, are seeking healing and seeking voice and seeking belonging and not finding that in the government system. They're not finding that in, you know, the shopping centres. They're finding that in family, in connection, in culture and in country. And we need sites like Darwin to be able to bring our young people for healing. And we, I mean, this is also a, a long-term strategy for surviving, you know, colonial occupation. We need sites to be able to find healing in to continue to, yeah, to continue to... Continue. Yeah, really. yeah, to continue. Yeah, definitely. Lenny, unfortunately, we only have time for one more question. So I wanted to ask you if, you know, for listeners out there who really want to um, support uh, the Larrakia people in the protection of Lee Point, um, what's something that they can do? Um, so at the moment, we have a petition on change.org. Um, to return Lee Point to the Lokia people. If you type that into Google, you should be able to find that, and we really appreciate signatures. We'll be delivering this um, to Parliament, I'm sure, you know, for multiple times into the future. This is a long-term campaign. Um, we have some great videos, like you said, on social media um, on my Instagram account. It's at Laniuk, L-A-N-I-Y-U-K, if you're in Darwin um, or planning on being in Darwin, March 31st is when um, Defence Housing Australia is set to continue bulldozing that site. So if that does end up happening, we will be there and we'll need as many people as possible to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, and I think perhaps even beyond this conversation, beyond this moment, because what you know we're fighting for on Ludicare country is happening across this continent. Like, it is devastating to see how many Aboriginal communities are standing up saying, no, we don't want fracking, no, we no. don't want mining, no, we don't want logging. Like, what are you doing to the to the heart of this, this planet? Um, I think beyond even the point, it's really important for people to start interrogating the the fear and the, the seeds of fear that the North, that the John Howard government planted around land back, mm. and that when we're talking about Aboriginal people and land, and when we're talking about mining and fracking and dams, you know what we're really talking about is the health of this land and the futurity of all people. And Aboriginal people have been silenced for so long on these issues. And I think that in this current climate crisis, it's really important that people are interrogating internally 
what they understand the role of Indigenous people to be on this planet and what land back actually means when what Aboriginal people are trying to say and trying to fight for is the future of everyone. Yeah, and that's such an important and beautiful note to end on, Lani York. So with that, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. I'm sure we'd love to have you on again to speak more about this um, and, you know, centering Indigenous peoples um, in this fight uh, in the in the wider context of what you just mentioned being uh, the climate crisis. But for now, thank you so much, Lani York, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 3CR is my favourite radio station and you always ask the best questions. So I'm always here for it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So we've been speaking to Lani Yuk, Alarikia, Kungarak and Gurinchi and French political creative and performer about returning Lee Point to the Larrakia people. Um, as mentioned before, for updates, you can follow Lani Yuk on Instagram. Um, her handle is L-A-N-I-Y-U-K. Make sure you sh- sign the petition. It currently has over 7,500 signatures and share it within your communities. You can find the link on Lani Yuk's Instagram and we'll have the link in our show notes this morning. Um, we're going to go to a, another track uh, now. This one is called Shiva by Nairi. Oh, I never told you to come and see me Cause I'm blind about the noise and the the city trying to kill me And I never thought you'd get to feel me When the distance between us is excited By the ocean trying to move me Something about my learning, arithmetic got me burning. Never bothered me one bit until you hit me right between. Something about my learning, arithmetic got me burning. Never bothered me one bit until you hit me right between the eyes. That was Shiva by Nairi. Next up, we'll be playing a conversation I had yesterday with Dr. Kathomi Gatwiri, who's an associate professor and award-winning researcher at Southern Cross University. She is also president of the Peak Body Australian Women and Gender Studies Association, or OGSA. In 2019, Kathomi co-founded Femicide Count Fenya. Kenya, sorry, an organization that counts names and puts human stories to women and girls whose lives have been ended through violence. We'll be hearing more about that and what's going on in Kenya now. Okay, so we're very excited to have uh, Kathomi Gatwiri with us 
speaking today about what's going on in Kenya in terms of a rise in femicides and violence against women. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Kathomi. Thank you so much, Francis. So, Kathomi, can you start by giving our listeners some background into what's happening in Kenya? Um, are we seeing a rise in femicides and violence against women? And if so, why? Mm. So in 2018, maybe 2019, a friend and I started um, a, a version of, uh, there's an Australian version called Counting Dead Women. So we, we started a Kenyan version because we were seeing a lot of women being killed and we were kind of like being, you know, we were tired of being told, you know, uh, men also get killed. They killed. They are killed at the same rate as women. Nobody's counting the men. Where is the data? Where is the evidence? We we're like, okay, we'll give you the data. We'll give you the numbers. Maybe then we can stop this national gaslighting strategy that's happening. That we, this is not a public health issue. And so we started counting, and the and the numbers are uh, are increasing every year. So I think just last year we counted a hundred and uh, over a hundred women. I don't remember the specific number at the top of my head at the moment, um, but it's all on our website, femicide count in in Kenya. And so every year we are counting hundreds of women being killed through violence. But I think what has specifically been interesting this year is as we started twenty twenty four. There are two women who are killed in a pretty brutal way in a space of a few days um, in Airbnbs. And so that sparked up the conversations about, you know, women's safety and, you know, in dating, in relationships, you know, the same old conversations. And and Kenyan feminists started organizing uh, matches and, and to ramp up the conversations again about femicide. Uh, and women being killed by men that they know or they're in relationships with, yeah. Mm, and we saw on, I think it was January 27th this year, that there were tens of thousands of people who marched across Kenya to protest violence against women and femicide. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's been described as uh, the largest event ever against sexual and gender-based violence in Kenya. Mm -hmm. uh, are we seeing um, more support and more um, awareness of this issue in Kenya, do you think? I think there's a rising awareness of because some of the murders have been so public, which then bring the conversation. I think women have always been killed within the patriarchy. The difference is that the brutality, the violence is now being televised. You know, we are recording the numbers. We are refusing to be silent. We are saying these women's names. We are refusing their deaths to just kind of, you know, disappear into oblivion. So, yes, that kind of televisation and the media's input into bringing this conversation into the national consciousness is ramping up support, um, you know, with older women and younger women kind of joining forces. Because what we used to see in years yesterday is more younger women, younger feminists driving the conversations and the older women just kind of trying to encourage women to 
um, be safe rather than, you know, be out there ramping up the protest and stuff. But I think what we are saying in the in what we are seeing in the last couple of years is the joining of the two groups. And I think that's also amplifying the kind of support we are seeing. We are organizing better. We have social media, you know, that's helping us to organize the protest and the movement. So I would say it's growing. And I would also say that, that the number of men who are also kind of crossing on the other side and saying, yeah, I can acknowledge that this is a problem is also growing. So I also want to say that because I think that's also, that's also going to be important for the change in the future. Yeah, mm, definitely. Yeah, I think when we're seeing solidarities in terms of different groups coming together yes. and realizing that they have common goals. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that is what has made a huge difference in, you know, we are moving away from talking about this being a women's issue, because I think when we position it in discourse as a women issue, there's so many people who feel disconnected from the conversation. And I think now we are starting to, to have a, a human rights lens into it, but also a public health issue being inserted into the conversations about femicide. Mm. Yeah. And um We've seen a few different demands um, in terms of what the response should look like, systemic change, regulation for the government to do more, for the courts to change. Um, and I think um, a statement from your organisation, Femicide Count uh, in Kenya, said that the government cannot remain complicit and that we need enforcement and accountability um, what do you think, um, what what are the activists and protesters asking for and, and what do you think are some steps forward? I think one of the first things that we're asking for, Francis, is just to be believed. Like, I think we're just tired of being gaslit and being told this is not a problem. When every woman that I know is so terrified to be out in public, you know, you, you never know whether you're going to be the next person in an Uber going home or in public transport going off, just walking, minding your business. So there's an element of normalized fear that is kind of gripped into, you know, the everyday life of being a Kenyan woman that we are just kind of, you know, tired of living our lives every day. So the first aspect you know aspect of this conversation is that we want to be believed like nobody wants to be talking about these things every day um and that's the first part is to 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 believe women right when we say we need change and the second aspect is really the criminal justice systems to really uh, support us because out of all the i think we've counted over 400 women since we started this i don't think there's any person you know, apart from one who went, it was just sentenced the last time I was in Kenya. That is the one public prosecution that we know of that uh, that has actually happened. So you can imagine four hundred murders, and nobody is is being held accountable for that. So we are asking the government to really be proactive in valuing women's lives and being very proactive in 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 holding accountable the men who are responsible for killing them so it can't be we say we value women and then when they're killed we say oh bad luck tough luck we'll see what will happen you know women just need to be careful so we are also asking the policymakers to stop 
you know, talking about this as if it's a women's issue. I think we there's a trauma issue, there's a collective trauma. We need to start having conversations as a country about our relationship with women, about gender relationships, about violence. And this needs to just kind of shift away from being a women's issue. It needs to be a collective decision about our collective Ubuntu, our collective humanity, and also a public health issue. So I think those things are really important. And of course, the umbrella conversation is really about the violence of patriarchy, you know, to, to start thinking that this is really the final output of the violence of patriarchy is to silence is to kill women. And we want to talk also about the other subtle ways, the microscopic ways, the micro violences that the patriarchy inflicts on women day in, day out that actually leads to 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 the death, to the murder, to them being killed, because the murder and the femicide doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens within a socio-cultural political context. And that context needs to be inserted into the conversation. A hundred percent. And I guess yeah. um, we're seeing in the news that discussion of then how femicide is different from murders more generally, because it is part of this whole um, understanding of gender roles. And uh, so it also needs to be addressed differently too. Absolutely. It's, it's very different to other forms of homicide because I think it's tied to a deep kind of misogyny. It's tied to a, to a deep hatred for women, to a deep disregard for women's lives, for women's uh, value, for their humanity. So it's not just that I can kill you, therefore I can. I can kill you, therefore I will. It is also, I can kill you because I also have no regard for you um, as a person, you know, because I think one of the things that shocked us when we started mapping up the themes about why these women are being killed and there's no justification whatsoever for why. But some of the reasons is that you burnt rice. You know, you're cooking dinner and you burnt rice and it got burnt. Oh, and you ate the last piece of meat, you know, or, you know, you came home late or you didn't pick up my phone or you didn't say thank you when I sent you Uber money. Like, these are the reasons that women are actually being killed. And you can see the equivalent of value you have to place on a person's life for that to be enough to end their life because they burnt dinner, right? It's horrifying. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. And also I guess that's why change is so difficult because, as you say, if women are out there trying to speak about this and they're being gaslit and not believed, mm. and that's why the the work of uh, what you're doing with Femicide Count is, is so important to put the numbers out there and the stories out there. Yeah. I think you've also said that um, probably a lot of cases aren't reported. Uh, the numbers aren't necessarily reflective. Is that right? That is true. We only report what makes it into the media because we collect what is in the public, dis what is in the media, what, you know, because we can't know in every village, in every township, in every county what is happening. So the 400 mandates that we've collected so far are the ones that, that have made it to the local news. So we are always looking for what's being reported but i can't just imagine in the village out there you know where there is no um 
awareness around this or where the news haven't uh, made it to to the public how many more women are being killed uh, and i would say probably it would be more double what we've counted because it's a it's a real issue yeah mm. Mm. yeah it's a it's a really urgent issue and uh for listeners who uh would like to know more about it um or would like to support the cause or get involved do you have um resources or anything you would suggest for them Yes, please. So we would suggest that you follow us on our social media, you share our work, you know, and especially, you know, feminists in Australia. And I know we are also dealing with our own crisis of femicide in Australia as well. But this is not about it. It happens there more than it happens here. It's more about a collective effort so that, you know, because there's a the global violence of patriarchy doesn't really matter where you're placed. So I think the biggest job is for us to support each other collectively. We amplify each other's work. We support the the, the work of feminists in the global majority, um, you know, where we can really collaborate and amplify the messages of, 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 of how destructive this is, then we do so. And, and I think that would be the first starting point. Yeah, 100%. So, um, Kathomi, that's really all we have time for. Is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, before we go? Uh, Well, the other thing that I would like to add is really if we want to start learning about what incredible things all women are doing to talk about global violence, we also have the Australian uh, Women and Gender uh, Women's and Gender Association, OXA, which collates voices, blogs, resources for all the work that is happening, not just in Australia, but elsewhere, so that we can read and, and hear what uh, what is happening out there and support people who are researching this kind of stuff so that we can know more and act different when we know better. We can put those links in the show notes and listeners can find those. Thank you so much, Francis. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, bye-bye. That was my conversation with Dr. Kathomi Gatwiri, founder of Femicide Count Kenya. You can find out more at femicidecount.org. This morning, we have Aruna Venkatachalam joining us from Young Change Agents, an organisation that's helped more than 135,000 youth across Australia. It works to develop their own social enterprises, and Aruna's on the show to, this morning to talk to us Lighting the Spark, a new program designed for and by First Nations youth here in so-called Australia that will soon be trialled in rural India. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Aruna. Hello, welcome. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, just to start off with, for listeners who might not be aware, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, Youth Change Agents and what you do? Absolutely. So Young Change Agents is a not-for-profit social enterprise and it exists to help young people turn challenges or problems in their lives that they perceive they want to change into opportunities through the vehicle of social enterprise. So we support young people to create their own social enterprises and to put them into practice in their own communities, being 
uh, mentored and supported by people around them who are really invested in their success. And so we've been around for about seven years. And in that time, we've been able to reach around 135,000 young people across Australia. And we very much work closely with community organisations and with schools so that the people that are part of those organisations are able to adopt or craft some of the materials or the resources that we use so that they themselves can start training or teaching young people social entrepreneurship as well. That's That sounds really great. Um, why is it so important to engage young people, um, especially at that sort of community level? It's so important to engage young people because young people are the custodians of their own knowledge. They understand the problems and the challenges that they're facing. And one of the big principles that we have at Young Change Agents is that lived experience is just as important, if not more important, than learned experience. And so they understand the kinds of changes that are needed to be made and the sorts of solutions that are going to work. And they also have the respect and the trust built with people within community. So they're the best equipped to be able to really make those solutions happen and make them successful. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that's particularly important when it comes to First Nations youth and First Nations yeah. communities. I think that grassroots knowledge and, and lived experience is absolutely vital for anything to sort of work in that in that setting. Um, can you tell us a bit about Lighting the Spark and how it came about? Mm. It's, a, it's an interesting story. I was actually in Darwin working with some young people at the time and those young people were sharing their solutions with a group of people in the community. And one Larrakia leader, her name is Serena Jan, she came up to me and pulled me aside and actually said, you know, her experience is that the young people that she works with, they feel a little bit disconnected and a little bit lost in terms of their connection to culture and country. And she had a, she had a wondering, really, whether entrepreneurship could be a way for young people to connect in with culture and country and also in a way where entrepreneurship as a concept and a practice has existed in First Nations communities for thousands of years, for tens of thousands of years. And she wanted to understand whether young people were interested in tapping back into that knowledge and being able to build on that with some potentially crafted tools that we could create together. And so that's actually how it started. We were invited by Larrakia leaders to discover with young people whether they were interested in entrepreneurship, you know, who they wanted to learn from and how they perceived the barriers to entrepreneurship. And so over the course of a couple of years, we actually co-designed this program together with young people. And that co-design process grew to include leaders and communities across Australia. And at this point, it's now reached around 1,000 young people and adults across the country. And what we're very proud to, to be able to sort of work and do is work alongside very proudly community-based self-determined organisations that are running this program, and then we're supporting that in whatever way that they see best. So it's a very self-determined program. It's very place-based in that way. So it's grown quite a bit, but very much driven by what was already there, <laughs> the strengths that are already there. Yeah, I think that's so great to to play on what's already there. Um, what were Have there been some outcomes from this program so far for First Nations youth? And, you know, can you expand a bit more on why 
uh, the program is so uh, it's so important for it to be designed by First Nations people in order to succeed. Absolutely. So in terms of the outcomes that have come out of it, you know, at the moment we have five organisations across the country who are running it and delivering it with First Nations young people that they already work with in a number of different ways. So whether that's education or employment programs that exist within the community. And the young people that have been involved have since gone on to develop their confidence, develop their their skill sets around being able to adjust from what we would maybe think about as a problem space and thinking about shifting that into a solution space. How might I try and think about some of the challenges in my own life and try and turn them into a solution or think about how I might move forward with the support of folks that I know and I trust. So that's happened quite a bit. And Young Change Agents runs an award with the community called Teens in Business. And a few young people who identify as First Nations have won awards as part of that and then been able to receive mentoring from folks within the First Nations broader community who are really interested in seeing young people succeed in their businesses or their social enterprises. And so to kind of build on that point about why it's important, it's really important for a young person to be feeling like they're situated in a community of support. And that community often comes from people that they know and trust, people who speak the same language, understand culture, and can really help them to build their connections to their own community and country. And so that's why it's really important that we're actually working alongside communities because communities have that knowledge implicitly and are very proud and strong in in their own right. So we're there to support that as much as we can. It sounds almost a little bit like a reclamation of entrepreneurship um, yeah. by breaking down these sort of you know barriers because I feel like it can feel uh, you feel like unattainable for um, communities and especially um, indigenous youth or you know youth in rural parts of both Australia and other parts of the world. Um, so that sounds really great and empowering for those people. Mm, absolutely, and it also taps into some very intrinsic knowledges that already exist. Part of the co-design that we ran together with young people showed that in some ways all, all enterprises that First Nations youth are interested in developing will have an element that will tap into supporting their families or supporting their communities because that's really important as a value. And what that then means is that in developing an enterprise, there's this amplifier effect that supports the community as well. And Supply Nation talks about this as well. They talk about how an Indigenous business is 100 times more likely to employ Indigenous folks. And that's a really important point in terms of the importance of a young person seeing that they might start something in their communities and be supported by folks around them and then be able to employ others and build that effect of, being able to support those in their community that are important to them. And then they feel that sense of agency, that sense of purpose. And this is what we've heard from young people as well. So it's quite a powerful effect that that kind of entrepreneurial learning can have with a young person. Absolutely. And you're going to be running this program in Meghalaya in India. Can Mm. you tell us about this? Um, Why did you choose that particular location? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a similar situation. We were invited. (laughs) Um, 
So we were attending the Global Entrepreneurship Congress last year in Melbourne, and one uh, person who, who was part of that conference, his name is, is Mark, and he runs an organisation called Avenues Megalia. And Mark was chatting with a young person who had come with us to the Congress as a youth delegate, and he was wondering, he told me this story, he was wondering, you know, who is this young person? How did he start his own business and how is he so confident? And this young person said, his name is Seb, said, why don't you come back and have a bit of a chat to some of the folks that young change agents? And so Mark came back to where we were standing and I was wearing a pin that said Voice Treaty Truth because this was pre-referendum. And so Mark actually came up to me and asked me, oh, what does that mean? What does that thing mean? And we had a really good chat about it and what it means and the different ways that, you know, it's going to mean a whole sort of host of, um, you know, self-determination outcomes. And that really resonated with Mark. And Mark already does incredible work in Nagalia, working with more than 100,000 young people across the state to be able to support them with life skills and leadership development. And so what avenues are interested in doing is building a social entrepreneurship lens into that, helping young people see that there might be skills that they could develop through learning about social enterprise, like creativity, like problem solving, like that confidence to be able to work through problems and try and come up with solutions. And some of that might lead to starting their own social enterprises, but it's really that confidence and that skill set that sparking of that entrepreneurial mindset that Avenues is interested in. And so that's how it all started. <laughs> and that's how we're building it. So the idea is, is to try and spark that entrepreneurial mindset with young folks and build on what's already there. That's great. Again, you know, it's... Um it sounds like it's empowering, you know, Meghalaya for listeners who might not know, it's quite a rural part of India mm-hmm. um, and it's a, it's a small, small place. And, um, yeah, it sounds like you're sort of giving people uh, the avenue to, to get up and do things from a grassroots community lens that will that will empower them to and their communities as well rather than a sort of, um, you know, really hard to attain entrepreneurship uh, model. Mm-hmm. Mm, absolutely. And there's really strong tribal cultures. Those are the words Mark uses when he talks about it. There are strong tribal cultures and connections to country and culture as well and really, you know, strongly held understandings of relationships with the land and relationships with culture. So our organisation, Young Change Agents, we're really interested in learning more. I mean, this is about an exchange of knowledge and an exchange of ideas when we're working together because we we feel that there's an opportunity here as well to understand how we might be able to link young people and educators and folks that might live in Megalia who are interested with young people and communities who identify as nations here in Australia because there's so much knowledge that's already there and if they can connect and be able to share that knowledge then that would be really exciting. That's another part of where we're trying to take this partnership as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, how can social entrepreneurship like this um, at a grassroots level help sort of break cycles of youth disadvantage both here and in India? It's a big question, actually. And I think it comes back to that idea of trying to shift the mindset, that skill set and tool set. It's 
saying to a young person that you matter and your ideas matter and what you think is possible is actually doable if you have the right ways to be able to express that and to be able to advocate for what you think is important and the support around you to make that idea real. And can't tell you how many times, Carnegie, I've heard or seen that click in a young person where they actually look like they kind of, you know, after you have that chat, they sort of say, oh, is this possible? Can I actually make this business real? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can. It is very, it's very doable if you've got the right support around you. And then it's about asking for that support. So regardless of, I guess, the, the background that they have, the background is actually a source of strength. It's where they get their knowledge from. And so, you know, even if there are a person who might consider themselves as socioeconomically marginalised or disadvantaged, there's a lot of strength that they could potentially draw from and that might come from within themselves. It might come from folks that are around them in their communities that they could support themselves to be able to start a social enterprise. So that's how I think we can break that cycle because that once we start with that mindset and explore what's possible, then we can really start to break down those ideas that it's not possible and move them towards what is possible. And this is what Mark talks about too at Avenues Magalia, where he says, it might not be that every young person who's part of a program with us goes on to start a business, but they start to spark that possibility that they could do something different to what they always thought was possible. And if we keep building on that, with, you know, with education, with opportunities, with networks and connections into the ecosystem across both countries, then it, it really builds that, that effect in a young person that says, yeah, I can do this, you know, this is possible. Absolutely. Irina, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning. But um, just before we let you go, where can listeners find out more about youth change agents and Lighting the Spark? Absolutely. So I would suggest that you go to our website, youngchangeagents.com, and you're able to download a copy of the co-design report for Lighting the Spark and get some more information about the program, as well as the other ways that we work with young people across Australia and across India. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Arna, and talking to us about this program. Thank you so much, Carnegie. Thanks for having me. So that was Arna from Young Change Agents talking to us about a great new program that empowers First Nations youth here as well as uh, young people in rural India to um, understand and set up their own social enterprises. We are going to play you a track now. Uh, this song is a Tuesday Breakfast favourite by First Nations artist Kion, um, and it is called Catch the Night. Gonna go catch the night Chasing not feeling you and me, it's alright the same idea, you're keeping me in a time We're in and out of, we're in and out of time Gonna go catch the night I'm sick of dreaming, you and me set a light The same idea, looking in my eye We're in and out of, 
That was Catch the Night by Kian. We're going to play you part two of a conversation we started off this morning with um, between Annie McLaughlin and Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre. In this second half, they talk about the impacts of changes to the disability support pension and impacts of their ability to enter the workforce, as well as the recent announcements regarding the Stage 3 tax cuts. The other thing that's really interesting uh, and disturbing, I'll have to say, is that uh, uh, 45% of people um, on JobSeeker unemployment payments have a disability from chronic health condition. Now, that sort of gives you the impression that these people have been moved from a previous system, right? Yeah, so um, the Gillard government and, in fact, Jenny Macklin who was the social services minister in the previous Labor government, um, presided over some catastrophic changes to the disability support pension and how you qualify to get on it and that application process. After those changes were implemented, there was a a very sharp increase in the number of disabled people and people who are unwell ending up stuck on JobSeeker payments long-term. So since that time, we've seen the average time on the unemployment payment shift from two years to now being up to around five years. That's not a reflection in the changing labour market or the unemployment rate because obviously in that time, those things have fluctuated. But that number has not. That number has steadily increased and has now plateaued at the level where we basically have one in two people on unemployment payments very long-term and with a condition that makes it much harder for them to get into the labour market, partly because of their own um, maybe capacity limitations, but also because employers discriminate against people. So it's not just a lack of suitable jobs for people that accommodate their health conditions, but also the fact that people don't want to hire you when they think you're going to be harder to work with um, or require support. And so what we're saying is that they reduced their payments bill and they've put all these people into a sense of fear and agitation. Yes, and I myself am on the disability support pension and and I have to say it is certainly not a payment that is uh, livable either, but everyone that I speak to who's on it, we all feel an incredible amount of guilt for the fact that our payment is higher even though it's not um, enough, because we know how many people, we don't want anyone to be living in poverty, but particularly for people who are disabled or have a chronic health condition, there are additional expenses that come with that. And that makes it even harder to survive a few hundred dollars a week below the poverty line when you then have medication, appointments, um, food and energy costs that may not apply to someone who isn't disabled. Yeah, it's quite cynical too. Um, the uh, 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 If we go back around, um, I'm really interested in um, how this, I just want people to underline the fact that the Stage 3 tax cuts were uh, forecast to cost $377 billion over 10 years and the cost of negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions from 2010 to 2032 is estimated to be 228 billion dollars so we're talking we're not talking about peanuts when it comes to big end of town welfare are we no and you know um fiona katowska some people might be familiar with her she's a cartoonist 
made a really great point today. And her point, it's a very simple one that's really uh, obvious when you think about it, that tax cuts aren't free. Every single tax cut is money being ripped out of the public purse. It's money being taken away from vital services, from things that benefit the entire community, going to individuals so that they can, I suppose, buy more investment properties and extract more rent from those of us who will never be able to buy a home um, and obviously go on their holidays or many of them are buying their yachts and their private jets um, while, you know, my fridge is bare and it, I'm sitting here alongside millions of other people on Centrelink payments in the same situation. Um, it is, it would cost uh, a lot less money for the government to directly support people on the lowest incomes and to make very high income people pay their fair share. And certainly our current highest tax bracket is not what I would call fair. Yesterday I looked up what the top tax bracket top tax rate was when I was born in 1986 and the highest income earners were paying 60 cents at that time, 60 cents in the dollar um, over a certain amount. And the second highest tax bracket was 46 cents in the dollar. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the, the system that we used to have was that it was a really redistributed, redistributed system, a progressive taxation system. And I think people don't realise quite how drastically we have moved away from that and we really now are in a very regressive system that is almost almost a flat tax system um, with everyone at every income bracket paying lower tax rates. And this is just viewed as an innate, unquestionable good without anyone ever wanting to weigh up what the cost of that is. Yeah, well, the report card that you would give um, the uh, uh, to the present Labor government is not a very flattering one. There is only one policy, actually, that I could give them more than zero on. And the one thing that they have done is enable more single parents to access the parenting payment and not have mutual obligations. It's a small number of people and there are still well over 100,000 primary carer single parents on, the, on payments that are lower than the parenting payment and have mutual obligations requirements. It's a tiny step in the right direction. And for the rest of us, whatever you hear, whatever spin you hear about things like the job seeker increase last year, which was less than our actual costs were going up, um, the rent assistance increase, I think I got the highest increase that you can get, and I think it was $10 a week, um, the year before that kicked in, my rent had gone up by $100 a week. <laughs> so they're absolutely, it's just obscene actually how much they're willing to try and spin things that they have to know are not meaningful. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I referred to it yesterday as gaslighting, trying to tell poor people that they've helped us when everyone I talk to is saying whatever things they have done, our lives as we are actually experiencing them are worse than they were two years ago. And whether that is this government's fault or macroeconomic factors that were in play before it came to power is irrelevant. This is what's actually happening. And when Scott Morrison resigned yesterday, I was thinking about a lot of the really bad things he did, but all I could actually focus on was the fact that he lifted people above the poverty line and took away mutual obligations and the absolute flourishing of the people that I was talking to who experienced those short-term changes During and what COVID. our society would look like. Yes, yes, in 2020. 
it's both possible and devastating that they both took it away at the time and that Labor have been too cowardly to say it is possible, we just did it and we want to make sure that every person who needs support is getting real support as we have just done. So that was a part of the conversation between Solidarity Breakfast's Annie McLaughlin and Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre. To hear the full conversation, head to 3cr.org.au slash solidaritybreakfast. That brings us to the end of our show this morning. We started off uh, just listening to the first half of that conversation. At 7.30, we spoke with Laniuk, who is a Larakia Kungakan Gundit Gurindij and French political creative and performer about what's happening uh, at Lee Point, the sacred lands of the Larakia people. Uh, at 7.45, we heard from Dr. Kathomi Gatwiri about her work with Femicide Count Kenya. At 8, we spoke with Arina from Young Change Agents about their new program, Lighting the Spark, empowering First Nations youth here in Australia as well as in India to run their own social enterprises. We will be back next week, Tuesday morning at 7am. Stay tuned for the rest of the week to breakfast. And thank you for joining us this morning on Tuesday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.